Hello once again, everyone, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. This time around, we have episode 14, The Amarna Letters and Some Lucan Pirates. I've decided to bump our announcements and other extraneous matters to the end of the episodes from now on, so that we can have history from the top. And then, if you're interested in the community announcements, you can just elect to stick around at the end of the discussion. I hope that this arrangement is amenable to everyone, but feel free to let me know if you prefer the old approach instead. Our last two episodes have looked at the so-called Minoan peoples, their heyday on the Mediterranean, followed by their slow decline after the Thera eruption, though, as we saw, the eruption wasn't the sole cause of their decline, though it was likely a large contributing factor. Today, we're going to take a brief excursus, one that I hadn't necessarily planned to take, but that I think will be helpful and eye-opening at this point in the discussion. As we saw last time, the Thera eruption rocked the Bronze Age Mediterranean around 1628 BCE, but the Minoan civilization wasn't completely off the scene for another 150 years or so at which time they were supplanted by their Mycenaean neighbors. We'll probably talk about the Mycenaeans more in the next episode, since almost all of the maritime-related archaeological evidence from their civilization is dated between 1300 to 1100 BCE. Therefore, I think it makes sense to talk about that in its turn after our topic for today. However, a nutshell synopsis of the Mycenaeans' early influence is pretty helpful to our discussion today, so here goes. The Minoans were probably not a full-fledged thalassocracy, as we discussed, but they were still ubiquitous on the Bronze Age Mediterranean, controlling trade routes around the Cyclades and making frequent contact with Egypt, the Levant, Anatolia, perhaps even westward to the very pillars of Heracles. Though it's also doubtful that the Minoans possessed a naval force, especially a centrally controlled one, like the modern navies that we generally think of, Thucydides still called Minos the first king to establish a navy, saying that he used it to put down piracy in order to secure his own revenues. Thalassocracy, or no, it seems a likely thing that the Minoans did indeed put a damper on piracy in the Mediterranean, because before the Minoan decline, we have little to no historical mention of piracy in the region. But once the Minoans were weakened, round about 1500 BCE, the Mycenaeans moved in, taking over Crete and exerting their influence over the region the Minoans had once occupied. Obviously, the shift from Minoan to Mycenaean was gradual. The first Mycenaean artifacts of note are the shaft graves at Mycenae itself, dated roughly to 1600 BCE, with the continuing use of these graves occurring over the next hundred years or so. Therefore, we can point to 1500 as the rough time where the Mycenaeans emerged as a true power in the region, and it was at the same point that they likely began to push out the Minoans. 
The true heart of what we'll discuss more fully next time is that by the time the Mycenaeans had fully displaced the Minoans, piracy had begun to emerge in the region. It's reasonable to surmise that this is because the Mycenaeans weren't nearly as worried about policing the sea routes as the Minoans had been. Yes, the Mycenaeans traded with many of the same civilizations that the Minoans had traded with, but as a very broad observation, it seems that the Mycenaeans were more war-minded and less commercially attuned than the Minoans had been. Generalizations, indeed, but I think that they will suffice for now, at least. We can explore the nuance more fully next time by looking to the archaeological evidence from the Mycenaean period, but for today I want to fast forward to around 1350 BCE. We've reached this point already in our looks at Egypt and Mesopotamia, so I trust that all this jumping around isn't too disorienting. To set the scene for the rest of our talk today, here are a few realities from 1350 BCE in the Bronze Age Mediterranean world. Depending on the chronology to which you ascribe, either Amenhotep III or his son, Akhenaten, is the pharaoh in Egypt. We're roughly 100 years removed from the reign of Thutmose III, a pharaoh that you might remember from our discussions of Egypt earlier in the podcast. Thutmose III had used naval forces in conjunction with Egypt's armies to conquer much of Syria and the Levant, including some of the coastal cities that we'll discuss today. A particular city in the group was Byblos, the famed city that is among the oldest of cities on Earth. This city will be a much larger focus of our discussion in the future, when the Phoenician people rise to preeminence. But I wanted to talk about Byblos before we move on to the Mycenaeans, because it's so central to everything that happens during the Bronze Age collapse, and because it factors heavily in some of the letters that are our focus today. To finish setting the scene, though, the Minoans have disappeared, and by 1350 BCE, the Mycenaeans are the big naval force in the Mediterranean. The new kingdom has just begun in Egypt. The Hyksos have been gone for over a hundred years as well. The Hittites are reaching the peak of their influence in Anatolia, much of it at the expense of Babylon's power and influence. In sum, the Bronze Age world is in flux, a foreshadowing of the collapse that's still 200 years on the horizon. If you can, try to keep this picture in mind as we now move forward to discuss some amazingly insightful artifacts from 1350 BCE. It's in this context that I just laid down that the Amarna letters inform our view of the Bronze Age world more fully. The letters were first unearthed from the ruins of Akhenaten's new kingdom capital city, the very city that he dedicated to the worship of his short-lived religion to worship the sun disk Aten. The Amarna letters, as they're now called, are contained on clay tablets and are mostly written in Akkadian, despite their burial in Egypt. The language of their writing is due to the fact that the letters contain diplomatic correspondence, addressed to the pharaoh, 
and written by his ruling representatives in the coastal cities of Canaan and Syria, along with still more letters from Babylonia and Cyprus. The most remarkable fact about these letters is that they give us a rare insight into the behind-the-scenes relations between the pharaoh and his ruling representatives throughout the empire. Normally, we're forced to read between the lines of the pharaoh's official records in Egypt, records that are almost always heavily edited to paint the pharaoh in a flattering light. Some things never change, I suppose. The Amarna letters, however, seem to be the straight correspondence from abroad. No alterations, no editing. As such, what they'll reveal to us today is quite useful. Like I said, a big chunk of the letters originated in the Levant coastal cities that Tutmos III had conquered a century before. Cities like Byblos, Tyre, and Sidon, among others. The Amarna letters are a treasure trove of information about the high-level relationships between the ruling families of the various Near East civilizations of the time. But as is par for the course here, we'll keep our discussion narrowed to the maritime history impact, which, again, keeps us limited to a discussion of the coastal cities. If you're interested, though, the content of the tablets is largely available online, and makes for some interesting reading if you know some of the historical background of the period. The letters are made up of many series of correspondence between the pharaoh and different rulers in different cities. The first such series that is of interest to us are two letters only that were written by the king of Alasia, a place that we now know as the island of Cyprus. In the second letter of the group, the king of Cyprus vehemently denies the pharaoh's accusations that the Alasians were part of a group of pirates that had apparently raided an Egyptian holding. Remember, this letter is dated to 1350 BCE, at least 150 years before the first mentions of the mysterious Sea Peoples, so this letter may very well be the first mention of piracy in the ancient world. If it is, it's actually quite insightful. I'll go ahead and read the text of the letter, and then break it down a bit. The king of Alasia wrote to Pharaoh Akhenaten, Say to the king of Egypt, my brother, message of the king of Alasia, your brother. For me, all goes well, and for you may all go well. For your household, your chief wives, your sons, your horses, your chariots, among your numerous troops, in your country, among your magnates, may all go very well. Why, my brother, do you say such a thing to me? Does my brother not know this? As far as I am concerned, I have done nothing of the sort. Indeed, men of Luki, year by year, seize villages in my own country. My brother, you say to me, men from your country were with them. My brother, I myself do not know that they were with them. If men from my country were, send them back, and I will act as I see fit. You yourself do not know men from my country. They would not do such a thing. But if men from my country did do this, then you yourself do as you see fit. 
Now, my brother, since you have not sent back my messenger, for this tablet it is the king's brother. Let him write. Your messengers must tell me what I am to do. Furthermore, which ancestors of yours did such a thing to my ancestors? So no, my brother, do not be concerned. This letter is kind of vague, yes, and unfortunately we don't have the text of what the pharaoh had initially written to the king of Alasia. Reading between the lines, we can basically piece together that the pharaoh, somewhere in Egypt, had been subjected to a pirate raid. For some reason, he had reason to believe that the king of Alasia had allowed his people to take part in the pirate raid against the pharaoh and the Egyptian holding. The king of Alasia then responds denying all such accusations, and in this letter he mentions the Luki. What we do know is that the Luka were also mentioned in several separate Hittite texts from the same period, and we can conclude that the Luka were a nefarious group of raiders and pirates that called Lycia their home. Lycia is a region in southern Anatolia, giving the Luka a good access point to the Mediterranean and putting them within reaching distance of Cyprus and other wealthy Mediterranean coastal towns. The Luca will pop up again in our discussion of the Sea Peoples, as the Luca were listed in the Egyptian records that mention the Sea Peoples. Anyway, the other interesting tidbit to come from the letter above is what the king used as his defense. He said that the men of Luki, year by year, seize villages in my own country. Again, kind of vague, but it does bear some application to the reality that piracy and raiding is, and always has been, a seasonal occupation. And yes, I suppose you can call piracy an occupation. Thucydides sure viewed it as being honorable, at least initially he did. Anyway, the seasonal nature of piracy was somewhat necessary, especially if the goal of the pirates was to plunder food. Harvesting cycles are annual, and by extension, the best times to launch a pirate raid would be at around the same time each year. Shipping cycles, driven by seasonal winds, are also tied to a temporal schedule, so pirates were again behooved to abide by the schedule in order to maximize their profits. Uh, I mean, plunder. This reality is one of necessity, as I said, and it's probably universally applicable. A 12th century Viking chieftain talked of going on what he called a spring Viking, every year after the spring seed had been sown, and then he would come home for a break at midsummer. Then he'd go out again on his autumn Viking, after the harvest had been gathered, and then he'd return home in midwinter stocked with food. Thus, this short letter from the Amarna records tells us a universal truth about pirates everywhere, as well as gives us some idea that the Mediterranean had become a bit more treacherous following the rise of the Mycenaeans. Our second conversation string from the Amarna letters comes from a local prince named Rib Adi. He was basically the mayor of Byblos, a city that, in his tongue, he called Gubla. Rib Adi is 
Well, an interesting character to say the least, as I hope you'll agree by the time that we finish looking at his letters to the pharaoh. Out of around 350 letters discovered at Amarna, 64 were written by Rib Adi, a fifth of the total cash. The overwhelming takeaway from these letters in their reflection on Rib Adi as a person is that he liked to whine. And he whined repetitively at that. Thankfully, I can summarize his correspondence and take some choice quotations, but to look at the originals, it's quite obvious that he repeated his complaints word for word over and over again. It's kind of painful to read, actually, and I imagine that Akhenaten must have been somewhat more patient than we imagine pharaohs would have been. That, or perhaps the removal of distance and the dire straits in which Ribadi found himself, led him to have no trepidation about being annoyingly repetitious. Either way, let's take a look. Despite his allegiance to Egypt and Egypt's indirect control of Byblos and the surrounding region, Rib Adi seems to have entangled himself in regional conflicts on several different occasions. His main conflict was with Abdi Ashirta, the ruler of Amuru, a relatively young kingdom in southern Syria, a kingdom that was also ostensibly under Egyptian control. Abdi Ashirta hoped to expand his power in the region, but since such an expansion would curb Rib Adi's power around Byblos, he decided to whine loud enough and long enough that the pharaoh would perhaps intervene. His most common plea was for the pharaoh to send soldiers and provisions, as Abdi Ashirta had hired mercenary soldiers from the local tribes, soldiers who were fine with fighting for pay. Ribadi accused his enemy of inciting the citizens of Byblos to rebellion, of sending assassins to take his life even. Eventually the pleas shifted from simply needing soldiers and food to needing Egyptian influence to stay the enemy fleet from mounting a blockade. Apparently ships had been mobilized from Beirut, Tyre, and Sidon, all three major port cities of the Levant, cities that later became the central hubs of Phoenician power. In these cities, Rib Adi begged Akhenaten to put a man in each city and prevent them from using their ships against me. The plea went unheeded, because a later letter has Rib Adi lamenting that the enemy has placed ships so that grain cannot be brought into the city. We cannot enter the city. He likens his situation to that of a bird that lies in a net. The sons of Abdi Ashurta by land and the people of Arvad by sea are against me day and night. The blockade was apparently a success, and the city succumbed to hunger. Eventually, the enemy ships went on the offensive, as still more letters from Reb Adi recounted that two of my ships have been taken. Later again, the enemy has seized one of my ships and has actually sailed forth on the sea to capture my other ships. I find it a little comical, despite the severity of Rib Adi's position, 
and the obvious sincerity and fear behind his pleas that in one of his letters, Reb Adi quoted a previous response of Akhenaten. Well, let me just read it to you. Almost all of Reb Adi's letters began with this same paragraph. Reb Adi says to his lord, King of all countries, Great king, may the lady of Gubla grant power to my lord. I fall at the feet of my lord, my son, seven times and seven times. Repetitive, but necessary when you're writing to the pharaoh, I guess. Ribadi then references a previous response he'd received when he says, Behold, the king, my lord, says, Why do you keep writing to me? Just great. This letter is only halfway through the stack sent by Ribadi, and already we know by Ribadi's own admission that Akhenaten is annoyed with all the tablets he's been getting from Byblos. I think it's just as great when Ribadi responds to the pharaoh's annoyance by saying, in the translation, anyway, Look, as for me, there is no city ruler behind me, and indeed, everyone is antagonistic to me. If it weren't for the fact that this is the Bronze Age, that he'd had a hit taken out on him, his city had been blockaded, among other things that had happened to him, I'd say that Ribadi had a bit of a persecution complex. But then a follow-up letter held Ribadi's account that the ruler of Tyre had been killed, along with his entire family. Victims of a coup incited by none other than Abdi Ashurta. The Hittites were invading, and Ribadi's world looked grim indeed. Now, whether he could see the future, or, more likely, his constant worrying became a self-fulfilling prophecy, we know from a later letter written by Akhenaten himself that Ribadi had been exiled from Byblos and executed by Abdi Ashirta's son, Aziru. The letter describing Ribadi's death was written from Akhenaten to Azaru, perhaps a small insight into the complexity of the political intrigue that was the Bronze Age world. I think I said earlier in the episode today, and I feel it appropriate here again, some things never change. By the tail end of Ribadi's letters, things in the Mediterranean were getting pretty far out of hand, it seems. Abdi Ashurta had previously hired mercenaries to be his muscle, but Ribadi reported that ships from the Milam people penetrated into the Amuri, northern Syria, and killed Abdi Ashurta. Akhenaten had likely been personally illuminated as to the threat of sea raiders, as the first letter we looked at indicates. Obviously, the pharaoh had been visited by the Lucan pirates and assumed that the king of Cyprus was in on the raid. This was the situation on the seas, around about the year 1350 BCE. Sea power had come to influence coastal cities in earnest, not just by connecting them through trade, but by using force and blockade to cut off that same trade. The Mycenaeans played their own role at this stage of history, and that's what we'll take a closer look at next time. Thanks for listening once again. At this point, I'm going to segue from the material 
into some announcements and thanks, so please stick around if you can. First off, some thank yous for the numerous podcast reviews that we've received since the last episode. I apologize if this is a long list, but just look at it as a good sign that our ranks are growing. I sure know that that's how I look at it. Thank you to all of the following for your kind reviews on iTunes. Surface Dweller, Austin YQM, Nick OTW, Boy Is Fiction, The Plural of You Podcast, Shane SGC, Chopstick Sensei, Books and Such, Cool Guy 34567, Phoenix Foundation Podcast, Colin P. Thompson, Paradise Moriarty, Shyam 13, and Jane Canucks 1980. Thanks again, everybody. Second, I did also want to thank those of you who entered our previous book giveaway for Pirate Hunters. It's been a little while since that giveaway concluded, but I wanted to recognize Kevin as our winner for that drawing. Thanks for supporting the podcast, Kevin, and I hope that you enjoy the book. For anyone else interested, I would highly recommend the book if you have a chance to read it this summer. It's a great summer read, full of pirates, action, diving for shipwrecks, and treasure. Not too dense, but still very informative, and a good overview of pirate history, too, if you want to learn more there. That about does it. This week is a bit shorter of an episode, simply because I wanted to get something out there for all of you, and also because I hoped that you would enjoy the Amarna letters as much as I did. As always, your support just by listening and subscribing is much appreciated. If you want to join the community and support in any other ways, we have a Patreon page set up with some cool patron rewards, and in time, I hope to get some members-only content going for our Patreon supporters as well, so the more supporters there, the sooner we'll get to the members-only content. Otherwise, feel free to find us on social media to get some more maritime history news and updates on the podcast. Our next episode, looking at the Mycenaeans, shouldn't be too long in the making, so until then, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.